I've had a couple which had like 10 years worth of this stuff. It was just crazy that, and, and in both cases, we went forward to the ATO and got the green light on to write them all off. Yeah, and then we're talking millions of dollars as well. I think there's some benefits to going forward because, I mean, if you go forward, you've sort of got nothing to hide. I think if the ATO looks at it later on, maybe they would say, oh, there's fraud or evasion going on here. But there's arguments for both. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 332 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. So let's imagine, let's imagine you have a new client and you look at their accounts and you see plenty of loans from the company to your client, the sole shareholder, going back for years. There's no Division 7A agreement and also no deemed dividend. What do you do? Do the amendment periods help you out? This is the question that Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. I first need to clarify some dates with you. So let's assume that we have Bob and he gets his company to give him a $1 million loan in June 2020. And I chose June 2020 because it's an even even round number. I think under Division 7A, he's meant to pay back the loan or take out a Division 7A agreement by the time he lodges his 2020 tax return. And is that correct? Is it the 2020 tax return or is it the 2021 tax return? In your example, we've got the company lending money in June 2020. And The requirement is that Bob needs to pay back the money or put a complying loan agreement in place by the lodgement day. So lodgement day. And that term is defined. It's the earlier of the due date for lodgement and the actual date of lodgement. So before the lodgement day being the earlier of the due date and the date for lodgement, the loan needs to be repaid or a 109N agreement put in place. So if Bob was to choose just to not lodge at all, then the lodgement day would be the due date of lodgement. Good. And that is based on whether he has a tax agent or not. So let's assume he has a tax agent. So then his lodgement date due date would probably be in May 2021. And that that encourages tax payers to lodge later than they usually would. So, f- for example, I have a client at the moment who has given himself a loan and because he doesn't want to pay it back yet, he doesn't lodge. Yeah, so if you lodged in November rather than wait until May, then you will have a Division 7A problem in November because that's your lodgement day if you chose to lodge earlier rather than, than, than towards the end of the period. However, if he lodges in May 2021 for this loan, then he has until May 2021 to pay it back. So now let's assume he doesn't pay it back and he doesn't want to do a Division 7A loan agreement. So that means he would need to recognize 
an unfranked deemed dividend. And which tax return is this unfranked deemed dividend meant to go into? Is it the 2020 tax return or the 2021 tax return? Good question. It's the 2020 tax return. What the rules state is they state that a company is deemed to make a, a dividend if it lends to an entity and then it's not repaid by a certain time period in the future. But the provision very clearly says it's deemed to make a dividend in the private company's current year of income. So the question is whether or not there's a dividend in the 2020 year, but whether or not there is a dividend or not depends on things happening after the end of the income year. So that's why it could be a little bit confusing. I agree. So that means since Bob didn't pay it back and since he didn't take out a loan agreement, he should have recognized an unfranked deemed dividend of 1 million being the amount of the loan in his tax return for 2020. He lodges his tax return in May 2021 and doesn't recognize the unfranked deemed dividend because he doesn't know about it. So then the amendment period starts and the amendment period is most likely two years because two years applies to individuals and it also applies to small business. So let's assume Bob is not a large business and his company is a small business, then he would only have two years, correct? Or is there a different rule for companies? Potentially. So it's either two or four years and it's governed by Section 170 of the 1936 Act. What it says for individuals is that the starting position is that the commissioner can only amend their assessment within two years of the date of the, the notice of assessment. But there are a number of carve outs to that position. And so it's two years because he's an individual, because the 1 million unfranked deemed dividend would have been recognized in Bob's individual tax return. And Bob is an individual. Hence, we are starting with an assumption of a two year amendment period, correct? That's correct. One of the exclusions to that, and the one that comes up the most often, is if the individual is a beneficiary of a trust estate at any time in the income year, then the two-year period won't apply unless that trust is a small business entity. So that means as long as Bob is not a beneficiary of a family trust. Or the family trust is a small business entity. Yep. Yes. Exactly. But is it a potential beneficiary or is it an actual beneficiary? It's a potential beneficiary. It, it can be very wide. And this, this particular provision was looked at in a case called Yazbek, where the taxpayer argued that this provision should only apply if they actually got a benefit from the trust. And the authority said that, no, it just says if they're a beneficiary at any time. It doesn't say they have to benefit just being a beneficiary is enough. Yes. And we actually spoke about this rule in the episode about default beneficiaries with Paul Golden, I think two or three episodes ago. And there Paul Golden basically said everybody in Australia basically falls under that rule because basically everybody is the potential beneficiary of some trust somewhere in Australia. And I wasn't sure so much about that. I thought it was more of an eastern suburbs bubble, but maybe maybe he, he's right. I mean, it is a very, very wide umbrella and you might not even know that you are a potential beneficiary under a trust. It's an interesting one because... It could be an in-law because spouses are usually included and it could be the brother of your wife who you dislike who has a trust and 
just on paper you are a potential beneficiary? Yeah, it's an interesting one because there's a question of, well, how do you actually know that you're a beneficiary? There's no obligation to tell someone that they're a beneficiary. And there's, there's also a concept of, of, a, of disclaimer as well, which is essentially a legal concept being that I don't want anything to do with this trust and I don't want to benefit from it. Essentially, you can disclaim your interest or right to be considered as a beneficiary of a trust. So the problem in the Yazbek case was that the beneficiary clearly knew that they were a beneficiary and did nothing to change that status quo. But in the case of someone who doesn't even know that they're a beneficiary, I think it's slightly different. It's, it's a hard one to prove. And then if the commissioner assesses based on a four-year period, well, how do you prove that you're not a beneficiary? Um, evidence that burden of proof as well. So there's a few things to it, but if you're not a beneficiary or the trust is an SBE, then you will have a two-year period. But the commissioners surely would have to identify the trust that does make the taxpayer a, a potential beneficiary, correct? You can't just say, oh, some trust might have you as a potential beneficiary. And I think it would be poor form of the commissioner to do so. But keep in mind that if, it, if the commissioner raises an assessment, it's on the taxpayer to prove that it is excessive. And therefore, the taxpayer would need to somehow prove that they're not a beneficiary of a trust. So I think in practice, yeah, I, think, I don't think the commissioner would just make it up um, and then force the taxpayer to rely on that position. But but it's just worth noting that just because of how the Australian tax system works. Fair point. Good. But so in our case, Bob is not aware of any relatives having a trust that could potentially make him a potential beneficiary. So let's assume Bob has a two-year amendment period. Uh, since he lodged his 2020 tax return in May 2021, his Amendment period ends in May 2023, after two years. That's correct. Unless the commissioner is of the opinion that there has been fraud or evasion. So if the commissioner is of the opinion that there's been fraud or evasion, then there's an unlimited time for amendment. But the commissioner has to prove somehow that there is some indication of fraud and evasion. He can't just snip that out of thin air, correct? Well, it's 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 sort of similar to the to the point we were just discussing because the, and this is a really tough one for taxpayers because how does someone prove that they're not they haven't that there hasn't been fraud or evasion? And this has been talked about quite a lot in tax circles on how you actually deal with this situation. But it's a real problem area that if the commissioner is of the opinion that there has been fraud or evasion and issues an assessment, then it's on the taxpayer to convince the AAT or a federal court that there has not been fraud or evasion. So the argument I'm slowly constructing here, hence is built on thin air, because the commissioner could always break out and claim fraud and evasion. But let's just assume he doesn't do that. I wouldn't say it's built on thin air. Or thin ice. Yeah, there is some risks to it. Yep, yep. Good. So let's assume the commissioner does not claim fraud and evasion. Hence, Bob's amendment period ends on, the, on May 2023. And then he's out of Division 7A territory. 
then he can no longer be forced to recognize an unfranked deemed dividend. It still means that at some stage, Bob needs to pay the loan back to the company and then the company has to declare a, a dividend to him before this company can be liquidated. So at some stage, the loan has to come back to the company and then has to come out as a wage or a dividend. If that's if the company insists on payment of the loan, the company could choose to forgive the loan. And if the company chose to forgive the loan, the consequences would be different. Yeah, then Bob would have income. You'd think so, but how the provision works. So if the company chose to forgive the loan, we would have to consider whether or not But then you have to see whether the commercial loan provisions apply, correct? Not, not quite. We need to consider whether or not the company is forgiving a loan. Oh, sorry, forgiving a debt, I should say. And if it's forgiving a debt, then you're potentially under 109F territory. The way the rules work, though, is there's a provision which is trying to stop being assessed under both 109D being a loan and then under 109F as being a forgiven debt. So you could have a situation where a company makes a loan and therefore triggers and doesn't pay it back and triggers 109D, and then the company later forgives the loan. The intention is that, well, we don't want both of those events to be taxed because that's, that is double taxation if you're taxing both the deemed dividend on the loan and then a deemed dividend on the forgiveness of the same loan. So... There is a provision in section 109G which states that a company is not taken to pay, sorry, they're, they're not taken to forgive an amount under section 109F if um, a forgiveness has already arisen under section 109D, either in this year or in an earlier year. So with your example with Bob, Let's say in 2024, the company chooses to forgive the loan and the rest of 109F would be met. It's a forgiveness, it's a debt, all those sort of things. But the issue is that this has already been taken to be a dividend under section 109D. I see. So 109D says if there's a loan forgiveness to a shareholder, then it's treated as a dividend? Is that what it's saying? No, 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 no. 109D is about lending money. If, if a company makes a loan to a shareholder and then the shareholder doesn't repay it by lodgement date, put a 109N agreement in by lodgement date. The provision we were talking about earlier with, with Bob just lending, the company lending the money to Bob. I see. So is 109D the normal Division 7A provision? Yep. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. So Sorry, 109D uh, basically just says, if you don't pay the loan back, then it's a deemed dividend. Correct. Yep. Good, but we yep. already had that. It, it basically was a di deemed dividend in 2020. It's just that we didn't pick it up in the tax return. Correct. So that means we are out. So the company can forgive the loan. Mm. Yep. And Bob never has to pay tax on this one million. It's better than I thought. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a bit of a, I guess you'd call it a bit of a quirk because the quirk here is that, yes, it, it was deemed to be a loan under 109D and therefore a deemed dividend under 109D back in 2020, but it hasn't been included in Bob's tax return. And now, unless there's fraud or evasion, the commissioner is out of time to amend that tax return. So 
we can forgive the loan and the forgiveness provision doesn't look at whether or not it was actually included in the tax return. It just looks at whether or not Section 109D was triggered. So it's potentially a loophole and it's been something that's been identified by Treasury as well. In the talk about reforming Division 7A, this specific issue has been listed as one for reform. However, nothing has been done yet. So this is still, this is present law. But this is fantastic. It basically means go through the um, balance sheets of all your clients and look for old loans, see when they lodged their tax returns, work out when the amendment period ended, and then forgive those loans. And you basically can write them off and they never have to be paid. And no tax to be paid. As long as you're safe of eva fraud and evasion, the commissioner can't come after you. Yeah, that, that's correct. The, the times that I have seen this in practice is where the client has been with one accountant for a number of years and then they have changed accountant to someone else. I think if one accountant was doing this the whole time and then tried to come around and say, oh, you know, I stuffed up previously, but now we've got a, a windfall. I'm not sure the commissioner would be so yeah, forgiving on it. <laughs> but it very often is the case of that a different accountant is looking at it now. So basically, if you get a new client who has massive debts from previous years, look at what is already past the amendment period and you can write those things off. Yeah, and potentially sort of the, um, the, the bits of Division 7A that are not as well known. So, for example, sometimes you can have pre-2009 UPEs that are subject to Division 7A. The UPE existed, but then the, the trust lent the money to someone else. So, and you could have simple scenarios where no one's dealt with it or those, some of the more complicated scenarios. But um, you could have situations where Division 7A is being completely overlooked. The commissioner is now out of time to amend for those consequences. And even the, and the loan's still on the books, but if it's forgiven now, you can rely on the, the double overlap provision. Yes. And so the sections you need to refer to is that when this loan was made and not repaid in time, it was a section 109 unfranked deemed dividend, but it wasn't picked up. Now that you forgive the debt, it would be a section 109 F forgiven debt, but section 109 G very specifically says if it was already a seven section 109 D dividend or should have been treated as a section 109d dividend then section 109f can't get you anymore and hence you are out of it yep yep and the same applies if you had a 109n agreement and just failed to make the minimum repayments there's a similar mechanism for that as well okay but that doesn't protect you that doesn't mean you can completely write it off it just protects you from that protects you from part of it yeah yeah just yep. protects you from penalties for not making the relevant interest payments and minimum repayments etc correct yeah correct so correct. the scenario where you don't have a one where you don't have a division 7a loan agreement and you basically just look at the raw naked loan that is past amendment periods, then you're much better off because you get the whole thing forgiven. Yeah, correct. Correct. Well, this is much better than I thought. I thought <laughs> this would just get us out of the unfranked deemed dividend and would just mean that we have time to pay it back. But now it actually means 
if it was the previous accountant who did this and didn't pick this up, then the new accountant can basically write it off. Yeah, and that's why that whole fraud or evasion and the, and the amendment periods and whether they're two or four years become so critical because um, then it's really working out what's in and what's out. How does the company treat this? Can the company tax deduct this write-off of the loan? I think so. I think it would be... Because if it had been considered, why not? Because if it, it should have been considered, it should have been picked up as income. There's income for the individual. Oh, yes. But we, we, we are treating it as a Section 109D. I mean, if the company could claim a, might be able to claim a capital loss if it's lent money and then it's non-recoverable, but it might also be a personal use asset. You'd have to work through the commercial debt forgiveness rules. It's probably not a commercial debt anyway. And I don't think there's any nexus to any income of the company either. So I don't think it would be a, an, an, an eight one, sorry, a six five deduction. So we've gone through a few tricks and traps of Division 7A. When is the lodgement day? Which year does the uh, deemed dividend arise if there is one? And then what about the situation where the dividend hasn't been, has arisen, but hasn't been included in uh, the individual's tax return? And we've discussed an interesting situation where uh, it may be possible to actually, for the company to write off that loan without further Division 7A consequences. I've had a couple which had like 10 years worth of this stuff. And it was just crazy that, and, and in both cases, we went forward to the ATO and got the green light on to write them all off. And so, yeah, and then we're talking millions of dollars as well. Do you recommend going to the ATO and getting the green light or is it better to just quietly do it? And I think there's some benefits to going forward because, I mean, if you go forward, you've sort of got nothing to hide. I think if the ATO looks at it later on, maybe they would say, oh, there's fraud or evasion going on here. But there's arguments for both. Depends on the taxpayer and how conservative or aggressive they want to be about it. Welcome back. So the amendment periods can save you, just as it was the case with missing trust distributions. To be safe, assume an amendment period of four years just in case a discretionary trust somewhere in Australia has your client listed as a potential beneficiary Or if you're certain that there is no such trust, you can go with an amendment period of two years. In the next episode, episode 333, let's talk about CGT event K6. Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will talk about when you need to worry about K6 and when you don't. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.